Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. As part of a special series, we're taking a look back at how various areas of the law have changed and what that means for those in the practice areas. On today's show, my guest is Asaf Orr. He's a lawyer with the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and he also directs its Transgender Youth Project. Asaf, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. Yes. So I am curious. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is I've noticed that recently in states like Texas and Alabama, there's been recent legislation to prohibit gender-affirming care for children. And in those states, what are parents doing? For their children? What, what are some tactics or preventative? I've seen some people are moving. How are parents protecting their children with this? Well, I think unfortunately a lot of parents are, are thinking about moving uh, for those who can relocate. Uh, for those who can't, you know, they're in constant communication with their children's mental health and medical providers to talk about options, trying to find ways to continue to obtain the life-saving medical and mental health care that they need without intervention from, from the state government, whether that is in the, te- in the context of Texas, an abuse and neglect petition, and in the context of Alabama, criminal prosecution. But I think the other way that, that parents are really pushing back is continuing to do public education about their families and demonstrating to people that they're just like any other parents who want what's best for their kids and are following the sound advice of trained professionals and also filing lawsuits. We've seen that in Texas um, and we're seeing that in Alabama as well. Is your agency involved in some of those lawsuits or working with um, local counsel? Yeah, so we are actually suing the state of, Al- of Alabama to challenge SB 184, which is the law that was just signed by Governor Ivey on April 8th that that criminalizes not only doctors for providing care, but it criminalizes anyone who causes a transgender young person to undergo medical treatment for gender dysphoria. Are you doing any polling or do you have a sense of how most of the country feels about legislation like this? Because I'm in Chicago, but my take is that, especially with children, most people are not in favor of this. Well, you know, unfortunately, we don't have polling data, at least not that I'm aware of. And, you know, the the difficulty is that there's a lot of misinformation about medical treatment and the treatment of gender dysphoria and and transgender kids in general. Uh, And that lack of information or misinformation has allowed a culture of fear to really pervade. And that is exactly what has led to uh, this legislation. And certainly, I will say the majority of people who would support legislation like this may think the difficulty for them is, you know, it creates a really dangerous precedent if the state can say, you just consented to what is the standard of care treatment for a medical condition recommended by your providers, and now we're going to take your children away, put you in jail. I think a lot of parents and a lot of people more generally would, would balk at that idea because it really runs contrary to the constitutional protections afforded parents and is not really what the state should be doing. They should be leaving decisions regarding medical treatment to, to the family and their medical providers. Obviously, you know, there are certain situations where it's very, treatment may be particularly dangerous 
where the state may have an interest in stepping in, but not when we're talking about what has been a well-established standard of care treatment that is supported by every major medical and mental health association, by scores of published peer-reviewed articles, among much more evidence. Years ago, I interviewed you for a story about transgender children in grade school. And at the time, a lot of the discussion was around the so-called bathroom bills. And you said it really didn't matter if a school district was in a conservative or progressive area. The rules, there was just a real patchwork of the rules. And it, it, it wasn't, you know, there might be a school in a conservative area that had a good bathroom policy or, or vice versa. First off, for the bathroom bills, are those even still an issue or have those pretty much gone by the wayside? Uh, unfortunately, they are still an issue, you know, mm-hmm. and they're, they're kind of, they've morphed in some ways. In some ways, they've remained the same. You know, for example, last legislative session, the legislative session that ended in 2021, Tennessee passed a law that required businesses to post these really large and very obvious signs in any business that allowed transgender people to use the restrooms consistent with their gender identity. And, you know, we, along with Sherrard and Rowe in Tennessee, have challenged that law on behalf of a, a, a businessman in in Tennessee. And so, you know, uh, that is, you know, just as much as those bills are coming back up, there are also legal challenges to those bills. In Alabama, on the same day that they passed this bill criminalizing the provision of medical care to transgender young people, uh, they also passed a bathroom bill. Huh. Is it also still the case that the school districts, how they handled it didn't necessarily uh, relate to whether it was a conservative or progressive area? It just all depended, or are you seeing more of a pattern now? No, I, you know, I think it's still very much a patchwork. And I, I think we're seeing it not just in the bathroom issue, but in other issues as well. I mean, you know, I think even when you look at the the legislation, the anti-transgender legislation that has come up this session, we've seen Republican governors come out against those bills or even veto them. You know, I think what what I think the through line is, is what efforts has the government made to meet with transgender young people, learn about their lives and understand their needs and, you know, the things that affect them on a daily basis. You know, I think the governor of Utah, for example, vetoed a bill after meeting with transgender young people and said, I I can't do this. I've met them. I know them. And I, I, you know, I know that this bill is not going to serve the citizens of the state. And likewise, we saw in Arkansas, what was it, two years ago or a year ago, where Governor Hutchinson vetoed a bill that would ban access to transition-related health care. And he said he couldn't sign it because it was too cruel. And so I think we're seeing it in a lot of contexts. And again, I think it's really tied to how much time has, you know, the school, school officials, government officials taken to get to know the, the lives of transgender young people and their families. What are you seeing if you live in an area where it looks like there'd be support for legislation that discriminates against transgenders people? For parents, when they find out that their child is transgender, what are you seeing 
what do these families tend to do? I mean, do a lot of them just were like, well, we need to move? Maybe maybe even send the child to live with a close relative in another state where it's more supportive. I mean, what, because it seems like having to send your child to school when this is an ongoing issue would really be hard for the child. Yeah. And I think, you know, first, I think a lot of families still, unfortunately, feel a lot of isolation, right? They feel like they're the only ones that are going through this because unfortunately, you know, it's still not talked about enough. But for those families who know about transgender young people or taking the time to, you know, do their research, I think, you know, it really depends, you know, state to state, even community to community, because of what I'll say, you know, even about our our plaintiffs in cases like the the one in Alabama, is in their communities, they have incredible support. So, you know, it seems it's almost a shock. It's like, this is not the state that I know, right? Because my community is supportive. And so you can certainly find those enclaves. And again, you know, it can be in, you know, small towns in conservative states or big big towns in, in liberal states. It really, you know, I think a lot of families are finding a lot of support locally. And as a result, they're able to, because of those relationships, are able to build a, a community around their family that is supportive and ensures that, for example, their kid can go to school without being bullied or harassed. But, you know, unfortunately, there are still many families who don't have that that luxury. And, you know, many do move to other parts of the state, you know, sometimes other states. And I guess what, what is still remains to be seen is how COVID affects all that. Now that many people are really able to work from home or largely can work remotely, you know, how does that affect people's ability to be more mobile? Do you find that for a lot of transgender children who are at, in school, was this remote learning maybe was a little easier in some ways? For for some, it was, right, because they were no longer forced to face their bullies every day. And so that was a, a positive. Assuming they had a supportive home, they were around supportive people for a significant period of their day. You know, but it also created, for some young people, it created more isolation, right? School was the place where they could go to a student group and meet with other young people like them. They could have those social outlets. You know, sometimes, you know, Zoom, you know, maybe in school when they were in person, teachers could use, you know, the the student's chosen name and pronouns. But Zoom was a little bit more restrictive. And so it may not have given them that option to correct their the name on their on their Zoom box. And so it showed a name that that was inconsistent with their gender identity to their peers and and to teachers. Do you feel like during the pandemic, many people became more accepting of being transgender or maybe got more in touch, maybe some children got more in touch with their authentic selves and came out as being transgender? Because I think of my life pre and post pandemic, and I know many more people who have a transgender child now than what I knew of before the pandemic. Do you think maybe there's an increase in acceptance during this time? I, I think that there's been a steady increase in acceptance. I don't know that the the pandemic necessarily changed that trajectory all that much, other than, you know, parents were with their kids all the time. 
And that gave an opportunity, you know, maybe, you know, it allowed them to deepen their relationship, giving them more opportunities to communicate and, and, you know, better understand one another. And so that may have allowed more transgender young people to feel comfortable coming out to their parents. But I, I do think we're just generally on a, on a upward trend of creating a, a society uh, and communities where being transgender is just part of the normal fabric of life. And so that means that it's okay for kids to be transgender, just as it's okay for kids to be lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And so I think naturally, as people get more information and become more comfortable with the topic, it naturally is going to create a situation where young people feel more comfortable coming out. Since you started doing work in this area, how have you seen parents' attitudes change? You know, I I think in many ways, parents have become more hopeful, although certainly this legislative session has tested that, because there's more information out there. There's, There's more ways to connect with with one another and and you know they're starting to to see you know transgender people doing all the great things that we've always known they can do right so they're now at the highest levels of government they are in professions like the legal profession medical profession they are you know so they can see futures for their children and i think they're you know watching this increasing acceptance of of transgender people and, and are hopeful for the future. And I think that's probably the, the biggest change. There's obviously setbacks, as we've seen again with this legislative session. But I think overall, th- there's there's a momentum moving forward. And I will say, you know, I think more so than the parents, what I've seen a change is in the young people who are far more out there And, you know, that has been, in fact, I think one of the most amazing things to watch this legislative session is watching the number of young people who are willing to stand up and publicly talk about uh, the fact that they're transgender and educate legislators and the public uh, about why the bills that are being considered are so dangerous. And some of these young people are probably your clients, right? Some of them, some of them are my clients and some of them uh, do become my clients. How do you prepare them or help them prepare to get up and speak in government settings and be good advocates for themselves? You know, I think what I often rely on is just that they are the the expert in their own experience, right? They know what they felt. And, you know, you can uh, easily psych yourself out by trying to anticipate all the negative things that people might be thinking about you as you're speaking, right? Or, you know, and you can't you can't let those thoughts stop you from speaking. And you really just have to talk about your experience and really, and that's the way to educate because the, you know, the reality is that these legislators, they have families, they have grandkids, they've got children, they've got friends. You know, as they start to see transgender people as just part of the fabric of their communities, it's going to be harder and harder for them to justify, you know, considering or debating these laws that really seek to target that target and discriminate against uh, transgender people. 
I also, when you mentioned it earlier, the bill in Utah, which I believe had to do with you could not play on a school sports team if it didn't match up with your biological gender, right? And their governor vetoed that? Right. So that seems to be, the sports bills seem to be get they all seem to be gaining popularity or for lack of there seems to be more of those now. What are you seeing around those and how successful are they? Or is it too soon to tell? Well, you know, they are passing in a number of states and have passed in a number of states, but they've also been challenged. And, you know, what we saw, for example, Idaho uh, was the first state to pass a ban like that. And that law was enjoined. West Virginia, the same thing. They passed a similar law and it was enjoined. And so I think, you know, what we're going to continue to see is that transgender young people and their families are going to continue to challenge these bills because they are discriminatory. They are based on sex stereotypes and are, you know, inconsistent with what we know about the benefits of transgender young people competing in sports and, you know, that the the claims of competitive equity and other claims made by proponents of these bills really fall apart under any scrutiny. And I'm curious, how common is it for a transgender high school or college student to want to play sports on his or her team? Are there a lot of people that are doing this or is the number pretty small? I mean, are you seeing states that they don't have any transgender or that maybe cities that don't have any transgender, openly transgender students who want to play a different sport and they'll try to pass the law anyway, just, just because? Yeah, I think that is, uh, you know, unfortunately a big misconception that, you know, schools will be able to field teams of transgender students, particularly the transgender girls who would then be able to, you know, dominate girls or women's sports. And, you know, the transgender community is a is a small community. We're not talking about a lot of, of athletes. I think, you know, Washington State was the first to, to pass uh, a state policy allowing transgender students to compete consistent with their gender identity in high school athletics. And they passed that, that policy in 2008. And, you know, for, for the longest time, the... Um, the director of the Washington Interscholastic Athletic Association, Michael Brees, would say, we've literally just had a handful, a literal handful of students. And so it's not a, it's not a lot of students, but the, the, the benefits of those students being able to compete in athletics is tremendous. Let's take a quick break. And on that note, when we come back, I want to ask you about some anticipated changes to Title IX in regards to transgender students. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? 
InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, my guest is Asaf Orr. He's a lawyer with the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and he spent many years advocating on behalf of transgender youth. Tell me about the expected revisions on the Title IX guidance, particularly in regards to what that might mean for transgender students. Yeah, well, you know, the Biden administration has announced uh, that it is working on regulations regarding Title IX, and we expect it to address a wide range of issues, many of you know which will benefit the transgender young people and students in particular. So, you know, we anticipate that those regulations will cover everything from dealing with reports of sexual assault and sexual harassment on campus and how to appropriately respond to those reports, as well as very specific regulations around non-discrimination and transgender students and possibly non-binary students as well. Do you think it will address the sports issue and it could make some of the legislation we talked about before the break moot? Uh, you know, it may it may uh, address the sports issue. You know, the prior regulations or the, I guess, current, still current regulations do make some distinctions in sports around the, the level of contact involved in those sports. And so there is a precedent for the Department of Education, including regulations that, that govern school sports under Title IX. Uh, but we don't have any indication either way whether or not the regulations will do that. Now, I have the impression that currently and since President Biden took office, basically the department followed federal lawsuits regarding Title VII and that they they read that as that people who are transgender and gay are covered under Title IX as well. Is that accurate? And can you kind of explain that for us a bit? Yeah, that, that is absolutely accurate. You know, and I think the, the reason is, is, first of all, courts have long looked to cases interpreting Title VII to interpret Title IX because there are very similar statutes. And courts want the meaning of sex discrimination to be consistent across federal law, unless there's something specifically in the statute that requires a different reading. And so what we've seen, and we've seen courts since the Bostock decision, apply the analysis in Bostock that discriminating against a transgender person is discrimination based on sex, that you can't discriminate uh, against a transgender person without considering their sex, that they've applied that to not only Title IX, but also the Affordable Care Act um, and other federal laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. 
how did you get involved in this area of the law? You used to uh, represent, you handled special education cases as well as representing people with AIDS previously, right? Yes. Uh, b- before law school, I uh, worked at uh, the AIDS Law Project of Pennsylvania. You know, h- how I got into this area of law, I actually, following my clerkship, I started a project at the Learning Rights Law Center specifically using special education laws to address the educational harms caused by bullying and harassment. You know, what I saw is that LGBT kids would, you know, experience really severe bullying and harassment. Their educational trajectories were entirely off track as a result. They lost significant time. They fell behind in their, in their, in their academics. And I saw special education as a way to address those specific educational harms because, you know, the only the only thing they could get from Title IX was monetary damages. And, you know, that is, although certainly uh, beneficial, you know, it, it unfortunately comes years later, typically. Um, and so it doesn't help address the kind of immediate needs that those students have to sort of catch up and get back on track with their with their education. And in doing that work, you know, I was immediately contacted by many families of transgender kids who were looking for ways to get school districts to allow their stu- their children to use the correct restrooms, to use a, a name or pronoun consistent with the student's gender identity. And at the time, Title IX had not yet been sort of interpreted to extend as fully as it has since to to transgender students. And so IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and other disability discrimination laws provided a, a great avenue for doing that. It was a process that schools were familiar with, uh, and they understood that, you know, when you're in the context of an IEP, for example, is that it's really critical to listen to the advice of the the students treating mental health and medical providers and make adjustments to the school environment to ensure that the student can access the educational program that the school is providing. As you've been doing this work, have you learned things related to your practice that surprised you about being a lawyer? You know, I think the the thing that has surprised me the most is just the things that that we see in court. You know, the you know what I have found is that when you're talking about transgender young people in particular, what we often take for granted as common sense stops to be common or sensical, and and people as a result behave in you know entirely unexpected ways. You know, anything from I remember I did a jury trial and one of the potential jurors talked about how he was proud that he didn't talk to his uh, lesbian and gay kids. He's got, I think he was five kids and he was proud that he didn't talk to two of them. And so just see, seeing the the ways that that people people respond, I think has been the, the most surprising, both in, 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 you know, that example was, was negative, but also in extremely positive ways. I've heard, uh, you know, really touching stories. I remember a an attorney that we've done a lot of work with mentioned to me that um, she represented a transgender teenager in a name change petition in rural Tennessee. 
And after the judge granted the name change, he, uh, this was a transgender boy, and he came down from the bench and he shook the kid's hand and said, good luck, young man. It was totally unexpected. And, you know, really just set a, a, a wonderful tone for the rest of this kid's life. Little things like that, the acknowledgement from someone in power, that, that goes a long way. Yes, right? it, 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 is, it is tremendous. You know, I can't tell you how many families still remember how they felt when Attorney General, General Loretta Lynch got on TV to announce that the federal government was suing the, the state of North Carolina for passing HB2. It was a watershed moment for many families, and they've talked similarly uh, about the the statements coming from the Biden administration in the State of the Union, uh, in their recognition of the Transgender Day of Visibility, uh, in in all the the efforts they're they're making to show that the government is is there for transgender kids and their families, uh, that they too are uh, an integral part of our communities. Um, and need to be treated with the same dignity and respect all people are entitled to. Those things you just mentioned, do you see a lot of families focusing on that as a way to kind of counterbalance the negative stories we're seeing? Because um, we, there's a lot of studies that shows these bills we talked about can be extremely hurtful to children, right? And what are you seeing in terms of parents helping their children to feel safe and secure. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly they do talk about the, the statements from the Biden administration so that they know, these young people know that there are people in government who do care about them, who do want to make sure that they're not being hurt by dangerous laws. But I think they also focus more locally on their faith communities, on their neighbors, on, you know, the school principal or school psychologist, you know, so these are people that, you know, obviously kids know about President Biden, but they're not, he's not someone that they necessarily will all have the opportunity to interact with or feel sort of a a closer connection to. But these people more locally, you know, are still adults in their corner. And that is, you know, incredibly critical you know, the, all the research on family acceptance and the, the importance of uh, support from adults in a young person's life really show that, you know, in addition to parents, it is important to have adult support in the community. And so I think, you know, families are turning to, to those support systems as well. What do you see that works really well in teaching your transgender t- child to advocate for themselves? What's key? Well, I think taking a step back, actually, I think the, you know, one thing I often tell transgender young people that I'm talking to who may be considering filing a lawsuit or considering being a plaintiff in a lawsuit we're we're, uh, planning is that they don't have to be a martyr. You know, that for some, you know, just because you're transgender does not mean that you have to put yourself out there. And I'll never forget, uh, represented a transgender student in back in 2011, 2012, um, in filing a complaint against his school for not allowing him to use the the boys' facilities and for not being able to room with in the boys' cabin on an overnight field trip. And 
for him, it was critically important to to remain anonymous. And kind of looking back on it, he has told me, he's like, that allowed me to just be a kid and to grow up and kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And now that he's an adult, you know, he's starting to speak out and he's starting to talk about his experiences and how they affected him. And so I think, you know, it's not right. It's not necessary that every child speak out. But what is really critical, just like with any kid, is building up their confidence, right? It is difficult, even for adults sometimes, to stand up in front of a school board or stand up in front of state legislators and sort of talk about issues that are important to you. What makes this even harder is that we're talking about not just an issue that's important, but we're talking about an issue that is vital to your very existence. And, you know, I think it's important to, one, build that confidence, but also, you know, let them know that they're there to tell their story. They're they're there to do education. Whether the legislators hear them or change their, their behavior in response to hearing those stories, that's not up to them. That's up to those legislators. And, you know, thankfully what we've seen is that those folks have been listening, although not, you know, not universally. So, you know, and I hope that that trend continues. All right. And that's everything I wanted to ask you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And listeners, thank you for joining us too. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.